0: So, again, thanks for being here. We're continuing on in a Life of Worship series. Uh, But this morning we're going to start somewhere else. We're actually going to start in the New Testament because it is Palm Sunday. It is an incredible occasion in Scripture where Jesus returns to Jerusalem for his final week of ministry and the final week of his life. What is great about this is that it draws an incredible parallel to where we're going to be in Samuel this morning. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke. We're going to look at Luke's account of the the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. It's on page 743 in the Bridgeway Bibles. We're going to be in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. Jesus uh, has been doing ministry, has been away from Jerusalem for some time, and comes to the disciples, and we're going to pick up where Jesus formulates a really incredible yet odd plan. After Jesus had said this, picking up verse 28, chapter 19, He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As He approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, He sent two of His disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you... Why are you untying it? Tell them the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? I want to pause here for a second. This is an incredible scenario. The disciples just take it on face. She's like, there's going to be a colt as soon as you get into town. You'll know it. No one's ever ridden it. It's tied up. Just go ahead and untie it. Really? Yeah, just do it. And if anyone asked, just say the Lord needs it. And so they get there and of course they're untying the colt and the owners are like um pardon me strangers why are you untying my colt the lord needs it oh i've heard that before but they let him go they take the colt back to jesus they brought it to jesus and threw their cloaks on the colt and put jesus on it which might have been awkward for jesus i'm not sure as he went along people spread their cloaks on the road When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In other accounts of this, they're they're shouting the word Hosanna. Glory to God in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known this day, who would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave a stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. It's a very heavy way to end that. But I want to take a look very quickly at this scenario. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem, as He's coming down the hill, the Mount of Olives, the crowd is erupting with joy and celebration, laying their cloaks out on the road that He he wouldn't even trample on the dirt. Waving palm fronds, shouting Hosanna, glory to God on the highest, hail to the King who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. They're celebrating this great victorious triumphal moment. And the Pharisees are there and they witness it and they they rebuke Jesus and, and commanding him to rebuke his disciples saying, listen, if you don't, you know, you need to shut them up. You need to be quiet. And Jesus says, "Listen, If they are quiet, if they don't celebrate, if they don't have this moment of praise and worship, the rocks will cry out. Creation will cry out for this moment's been preordained from the beginning of time. It is a moment in which God should be praised. So, of course, they continue to praise and the crowds continue to grow. And Jesus explains as he looks over Jerusalem this scenario that Jerusalem does not even recognize the coming of its own king. It was really funny. Friday night we had our newcomers dinner, and some of you may have been there. Lance explained after going to uh, Israel and spending time there, the thing that changed most is when you actually see the places the Bible talks about and you actually can visualize what it looks like to sit in these places, the Mount of Olives, look down the hill to Jerusalem, to be in these places, but then to know that Israel geographically is surrounded by its enemies, and that their lives in Jerusalem has been warred over for centuries, has been destroyed and rebuilt countless times. Jesus says these words, and we have seen it, Even in our own lives. I mean, I'm only 39 years old, and I I know how much trouble I've seen Israel in from the time of my childhood. And it continues. So this makes it very real. But what I really want to focus on is the people's initial reaction. When Jesus comes in, they're celebrating. They're waving palm fronds, throwing down their cloaks. They're having this incredible moment of celebration of the coming king. Because it was prophesied there would be this coming king. The problem is, as we know, because we get the full story, we see on Friday, crowds of people gather together, shouting different words. Because they move from Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, blessed is the King of Israel, who comes in the name of the Lord to crucify Him. And the mood changes. Why? Because the prophecies had been delivered, the prophecies had been taught, that there would be this great victorious king coming, and everyone assumed and understood it would be a military king, a majestic, glorious, triumphant king, and Israel at this time is under military occupation and oppression from the Roman Empire. So their thought, their expectation was that Jesus would come in, this returning king, the savior, messiah, deliverer, would come in and throw off the Roman oppression. He would be a military king, the same as David was. Yet Jesus came in riding on a colt and spent a week in humility ministering to people and didn't lift a finger to chase the Romans out of Jerusalem. And by the end of the week, it's really easy to stir the crowd up to say, listen, he's not the king we're expecting. He's not the king that's going to meet our needs. He's not the king that's going to do what we want. He's a different kind of king, and he's not the kind of king we need. You see, the crowd at that point and the people in Jerusalem were dealing with something we have a name for now. They probably didn't have a name for it then. The name now is called humanism. Where the greatest ends and the greatest means of all mankind is our own personal gain, our own personal pleasure, our own personal comfort. That we are the greatest ends of all humanity. That's humanism. It's not a shock to us. In fact, some of us might say, oh, I know some people like that. We're aware of it. We can identify it. So where's the problem? Well, the problem is that we don't seem to see it creeping into our own lives and into our own walks and into our own church and into our own approach to worship. And this morning we're going to spend time looking at a passage in Scripture that peels the lid back on this issue and forces us to, to deal with it and really becomes an indictment of our hearts. So if you would, go ahead and turn with me to the book of First Sam, Samuel, chapter 15. Two weeks ago, Paul Tomey joined us from Sun River. And he walked us through the last half of chapter 13 through 14, talked about Israel's desire and demand for a king and how God had said a king will ruin you. He reminded us that they asked for a king against God's design. God had laid out a plan for a king that would would look a certain way, but that he would remain the overall Lord and ruler of Israel. But Israel decided they wanted a king like other nations, like other countries, it's the first biblically recorded aspect of a peer pressure. Everyone else has one. We want one too. So they get this king. God warns them about this. They say they want it anyways. And so God gives them this king. He's reluctant. And then as soon as he takes reign, things just kind of start falling apart because his main focus is not the well-being of Israel or the glory of God. It's himself. And Paul with us that week, repeated over and over Saul's major malfunction and that was this that he really needed the win And he always really Needed the win. He needed to be recognized. He needed to be affirmed. He needed so much To be the guy so we're picking up chapter 15 verse 1 Samuel comes to Saul, said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you the king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels, and donkeys and on that light note let's pray god this morning as we come to you we are staring into your word god your truth your message god i pray this morning that through your holy spirit god you would bring it to life the words can be spoken and words can be read god it is your spirit that ignites them And makes them a truth that we can live out. And so, Lord God, this morning we pray for you to fill this place up. Continue to dwell with us. Make us aware of your presence, God. God, help us to sit and listen with open hearts that you would teach us this morning. God, be in this place as we are with you. Be with us. In Jesus' name. Amen. So... We kick off chapter 15 in a a fairly heavy manner. Saul gets instructions from Samuel. Samuel comes to Saul and he gives them this opening line. I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message of the Lord. Samuel comes to Saul delivering these instructions and I really get this sense and throughout this passage, throughout this chapter, we're going to get this reaffirmed. Samuel has a great hope for Saul. I really believe that Samuel longs for Saul to do something good, to do something redeeming because Saul has spent his entire reign as king so far just really messing it up. And Samuel is just wanting, not for Saul's sake, but for Israel's sake. Because he wants so badly for his nation to have good. He wants Saul to do well. And I identify with that. I identify that with that because I have a 10-year-old son. And he plays basketball. And, uh, well, he plays basketball like a 10-year-old plays basketball. Which, if you've never seen it, it's a great spectacle. Because the 10-year-olds, they play basketball in a big mob and the mob has a ball, and the mob moves from one end of the court together down to the other end of the court with the ball kind of popping around in there, and then the ball pops up and goes near the basket, bounces off, and goes back into the mob, and they run back down the other way. Sometimes even if the same team that shot it got it back, they still run the other way. My son Jack loves the sport of basketball. I mean, like, he finally, it clicked for him this year. He loves it. He's not bad at it. He, and he started, like, everything, NCAA. He, was in the, he had his own bracket. He's in his room calling bookies. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but he was really into it. And I loved watching him play because he gets so passionate about it. And as a dad, you know, you just, you want your son to do well. But Jack's belief is that the greatest contribution to the sport of basketball is the three-point shot. And he he kind of thinks Kevin Nash is the greatest player ever, which he, you know, arguably, maybe. And Kevin Nash can shoot some three-pointers. And so Jack believes that that is his calling and his gifting in basketball. I'm like, work on the 15-footer, son. So he would get the ball, and he would run down, and he can dribble, and he's fast. And he gets down there, and he'll just do the, ah! And you see the ball just fly. His shot percentage taking is immense making is kind of slim But I'm just hoping at some point Jack that you'll be redeemed because you can't figure out why his teammates don't want to pass to him I'm like well, you try to explain it in a nice way, but you just want so badly for that moment to happen You're longing for it and it did finally come and it was amazing. It was the last game of the season on his birthday I was like, thank you, Jesus because I'm pretty sure his eyes were closed. The mob, the mob went running down, and the ball just kind of popped out, and Jack was standing there where he always stands on the three-point line. And it came to him. And he just, you know, eyes closed, arms flinged, and it just arced way up and right through the net. And his coaches went crazy. I went crazy. It was like, oh, Finally. It was a great moment, and I really believe in my heart that this is where Samuel is for Saul. He just wants so badly for Saul to have this moment. Here's one more thing, Saul, that God wants you to do. Here are his instructions from front to back. He wants you to go and make war against the Amalekites. He's going to punish them for their sin that they committed when they waylaid, excellent use of the word, waylaid the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. Now, this happened almost 400 years prior, in which e- Hebrews are coming up out of Egypt. Moses is leading them. This is in Exodus 17, where Joshua goes out because the Am- Amalekites like, come against Israel as they're moving up from Egypt. No one else has messed with them because of the reputation coming out of Egypt and what God did to the Egyptians. So they're moving up, and the Amalekites come make war against them. Joshua goes out to fight. This is the story where Moses takes his staff and he goes up on the, on the top of the hill. And as he's holding it up, as long as it's up, they're winning. If it starts to drop, they start to lose. So Aaron and Jethro go up there to put him on a rock and they hold his arms up. And Joshua gets the win. God routs the Amalekites, but it says at the end of that passage, the end of that event, that God will make war be at odds with the Amalekites from generation to generation until now. And here's what happens. He says, I want you to go and make war against the Amalekites. Go and attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. This is where it gets really rough for us to hear. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Total annihilation. And that's rough. We don't like to hear that kind of stuff about God. Because in our minds we have God kind of painted a certain way. And when you start talking about a God that wipes out nations, we just we struggle with that because it includes things like women and children and infants. And God's very clear. You destroy everything, leave nothing alive. Well, we have to understand that God's judgment for the Amalekite sin is complete and it comes from a righteous place where his wrath is unfolded, but it paints a more complete picture. Once we understand what happens, you see, God has a plan that Saul is supposed to follow. So we're going to continue on and we're going to get a better picture as to why this is necessary. So Saul summoned the men, verse 4, mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, what? Alive. Let's pause here. Here's our first breakdown in communication. Because if you go all the way back to verse 3, it says, now go and attack the Amalekites and totally destroy what? Everything. How much is in everything? Oh. Oh every thing it's a simple isn't it a conjunction with a yeah something like that no that's not a conjunction that's not what the people with the railroad cars said it's a compound thank you hey i have a degree in personnel management the other guys have english degrees okay that's not me but he says to destroy everything everything and immediately, Saul attacks them, routs them, and takes Agag, the king, alive. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. So you get this breakdown. Saul goes in, leads the attack, gets the victory, but rather than following following God's instructions, he takes Agag, prisoner, and then they destroy everything, all of the people, but then they keep the best of the sheep and the cattle and destroy all of the weak animals. That is not what God asked him to do. And God is so grieved by this, in verse 10, he goes to Samuel. And he says, I am grieved, in verse 11, that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Again, you get this picture. Samuel desires, just, oh, Saul, why can't you just, really, stop closing your eyes? Can you just do what God said? And so he gets up in the morning, in verse 13, or verse 12 and he goes to meet Saul but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel there he has set up a monument in his own honor oh he just you're talking about making a bad situation worse I think I'll make a statue to myself in the midst of all this in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal when Samuel reached him Saul said the Lord bless you I have carried out the Lord's instructions Hey, Sam, so good to see you. Thanks for coming down and checking on us. We totally did what God said. Really? Because that's not what I got from God last night. Saul answers, not going the director route. verse 15, or 14 rather. What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? So you you killed everything. You destroyed everything? Yes, absolutely. Huh. So all of the animals that I hear, because you left to go to Amalek, You you didn't have any animals, and suddenly now you have animals. Did you stop along the way? Was there a sale? How much money did you save us, dear? And Saul jumps in, And immediately tries to deflect. Saul says, the soldiers brought them. Love the use of the word brought them. Brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. So first of all, Saul deflects, blames the soldiers, lightens the language. They brought them from the Amalekites. We totally didn't kill everybody and take their stuff. They brought them. Kind of borrowed them without asking while they were killing them. It's okay. And then he says, he spiritualizes his disobedience by saying, we intended to do it for good. We were going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. And there's an interesting nuance you're going to find throughout this chapter. Saul continues to speak to Samuel. And when he says, the Lord your God, that's all he ever says. He never refers to God as our God or my God. There is a relational breakdown happening in Saul's heart when it comes to him and God, the God who anointed him king over his chosen people. And Saul is just not connecting with that. But he tries to make it all spiritual. like Well, we were going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. It's a good thing. We meant it for good. And Samuel says, verse 16, stop. Samuel said to Saul, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And one of the most, I don't know, it makes me scratch my head, quick passages in all of Scripture. Saul, tell me. As though it's story time. (laughs) Tell me. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Samuel gives him the rundown and says, listen, God gave you very clear and concise instructions. He told you what you needed to do and you did not do it. Now, here's what this looks like. We had struggled with the idea that God would say, go and kill everything. Men, women, children, infants, cattle, everything. Destroy everything. Here's why it becomes a problem with what Saul actually did. Because suddenly now that the Israelites have gone to war against the Amalekites, killed everyone but the king, and taken all of the finest animals, suddenly this is a conquest about stuff. Suddenly the Israelites have become plunderers and raiders, and they are no better than common thieves, and they are smearing the name of God. Because remember what God did in Egypt... He laid a plague against Egypt that as the Israelites came out, as the Hebrews came out, the the absolute rumor, the power of what God had done in Egypt carried the Hebrews all the way through their journey until they met with the Amalekites. Everyone was like, we're not touching those people. Do you know what God did to Egypt? Did you hear about what he did to those people? Killed every firstborn son. Okay, he laid waste to Egypt. We're not touching those people. The Amalekites, they had, you know, a brain cramp and they were like, we're just going to get them. And God's like, listen, you will not smear my name and turn this into a campaign about acquiring more things for you, no matter what you, what label you put on it. But it gets more telling because in verse 20, Saul explains, but I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder, plunder. The best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God, Gilgal. Again, it's the Lord, your God. We want to do this thing for your God. And throughout this story, I think it's easy for us to look at Saul down our nose and say, man, That's Saul. He's just a rebel. He just lives his life in sin. He's just rebelling against God. Here's the thing that I struggle with. Is I honestly believe that Saul thought in his mind and in his heart what he was doing was good. Here's why. God had given him a plan and said, go do this. And Saul took the plan and he modified it a little bit. He just adjusted it a little bit. That... it would look better when he got done with it. Let me ask you a question. Have you never, ever done that? Have we never done that same thing? Where God has said, here's what I want from you, here's what I want you to do, and we look at it and go, oh man, but if we just did it this way, oh, then it would be perfect. God, for you, and for me. This is a struggle, and it brings us to our fill-in-the-blank tonight. Which, just a side note for you guys, I've been here, uh, it'll be seven years this June, I get a chance to fill in a pulpit a few times a year, and I haven't done a fill-in-the-blank since 2006. <laughs> I, I kind of gave up on them, because they weren't my thing, but this one just really struck me, and so, uh, you're at a kind of a historic moment here's the fill in the blank this this weekend worship is broken when our glory is included worship is broken when our glory is included what does it mean Saul modified God's plan. He wanted to go down and have this massive ceremony, right? Remember, we sat here two weeks ago. Paul told me his words. Saul needed what? The win. He really needed the win. And this was a way in which Saul could engage, get what he needed, as well as doing what God wanted. So now they would go down to Gilgal and they would have this massive festival this massive ceremony in which they would sacrifice all of these animals and they would publicly execute Agag, and they would devote the entire thing to God and if we knew nothing else about the story we would all look at that and say what's wrong with that? That sounds amazing. Wouldn't God want that? I mean really? Because all they're going to do is they're going to have this ceremony and God's going to get the praise. Well, guess what? Guess who gets to stand at the center of that ceremony, leading the whole thing. Smile on his face, a head taller than everyone else around him. Saul. And Saul gets to lay claim to the victory that he wins for Israel. And people get to come by and thank him and praise him. Saul, you're a magnificent king. You brought us a great victory. And Saul can stand there and say, yes absolutely i've won this great victory i mean you know god went along with me i took god to the victory and he sort of helped but we won this great victory oh praise god yet at the heart of it at the heart of it what he really wants is to be attached he wants his glory riding on the coattails of god's and what god is saying listen I needed you to do this this specific way because now my name and the name of my chosen people will be slandered for generations. Because now you've turned it into stealing things. Because you can. And you can spiritualize it all you want. But it's not what I asked. And this is what Samuel goes on to say. Verse 22 Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you as king. Samuel looks at him and says, don't you get it? God is not interested in your ceremonies and your festivals and your stuff and your sacrifices. God is interested in your completely surrendered obedience to Him. That is worship. The offerings and all of those things He has enough of. What He wants from you is to do what He asks. That becomes more important, Saul. Your plan doesn't matter. Your glory doesn't matter. God's glory matters. That is the best end of all humanity, not itself. Saul reacts and he says to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people. He wanted to win. So I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back, to me, come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord God has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. The irony of this exchange is that Samuel looks at Saul and says, just as God's judgment against the Amalekites was complete and final, his judgment against you is complete and final. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to look into this and go, I believe this breaks Samuel's heart. But once again, we see this idea that Saul did not get that he was in sin. I believe Saul fully felt like he was doing what was right. He was doing what was good. What was the harm in bringing God more glory and riding along with it? Because it broke worship. Saul's glory got attached. It breaks our worship when our glory gets attached. What does that mean? How does that occur in our lives? Well, for us, I think glory really means the things that we attach to worship, such as comfort or convenience, affirmation, self-absorption, pleasure, recognition, gratification. When we believe that through our worship we're supposed to gain those things, We suddenly turn worship into a thing that is about us and no longer about God. And our worship is broken. What's more important, it's broken by our brokenness. You see, Saul was a broken man. He was hurting. He had needs. He needed them fulfilled. And rather than let God wash over him, become the satisfaction of his life, he fought for that satisfaction in other ways. And in his brokenness, he hindered the worship of God's name. In his own life. He didn't do it maliciously. He didn't do it with the intent of rebelling and sinning. He did it because he thought it was a better plan. And when we look at it that way, suddenly that resonates in our own hearts. Because it's a struggle we can realize. It's a struggle we can identify with. But... Not that I want to leave you mired in the, oh my gosh, we're all doing it wrong. Everyone does it wrong. It's horrible. I want to give you hope. And so in Scripture, we are given great examples of how people worshiped in their brokenness completely. From a place of surrender. If you would, you don't have to, but if you want to, I should say, turn to the book of Job. And in the book of Job, chapter 1, Job has just received all of the news that his family has been wiped out. Everything is lost. It's not a good day for Job. And this is how he responds. Chapter 1, verse 20. And remember, all of this happens. This is how the story starts. Death, destruction, badness. And in verse 20 of chapter 1, this is how Job responds. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. He falls down on his face and he worships God despite his circumstances. He holds no malice towards God for what he has lost. He's not embittered for what has happened at God. And it says... Concluding that in verse 22, in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. He humbled himself and fell on his face in his circumstances and worshiped God, despite having the worst day of his entire life, which is far worse, I think, than any day we could ever muster up. And he worshiped God. We see it in the life of David, which we're going to cover later this year. In Second Samuel chapter 6, David has a massive defeat or a massive victory over the Philistines. He hands them a crushing blow, and he brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. This is a famous story. I mean, if you've been around church for more than like, you know, 30 seconds, you've heard about this guy named David who danced in his underwear, and you're trying to figure out why. Why on earth would you do that? That's crazy. Now, of course, scholars argue maybe it wasn't his undergarments. Maybe it was a different kind of robe, a linen ephod. It wasn't necessarily what he was wearing. In fact, it may have just been that it wasn't his kingly clothes, the clothes of position. But it was the fact that it wasn't really in proper decorum for a king to dance around in front of everybody like a fool. But God had delivered such a great victory. This was such a great moment of celebration that David danced deliriously in front of everybody. And it says his wife, Michael, despised him. And she confronts him on it. And he says these famous words. Listen, I will become even more undignified than this. I will go full nude next time if you're not careful. God is just that good. Do you understand? I don't care. I don't understand why you care so much. It's my life. It's my reputation. God is so good. Decorum aside, I just want to celebrate what God has done. And David did not consider the cost of what people might think. He just danced before God and celebrated. And then last week, Casey Fry stood up here and shared with us, A story, as we talked about worship, about this woman. This woman who went into a Pharisee's house. This sinful woman who most scholars would say was a prostitute. This sinful woman who went into a Pharisee's house to worship Jesus. And she wept on his feet. And she wiped it with her hair. And she anointed his feet with perfume. She didn't care the cost either. She was like, I don't care, I just want to worship. I don't care that I'm standing in a Pharisee's house. I don't care that he's judging my heart. I don't care. I want to be near my Savior. I want to be near my King. I want to worship Him completely and fully and freely from a place of total abandon, total surrender. And that's what all three of these people did. A wealthy farmer, the King of Israel, and a prostitute. Worshipped from a place of complete surrender, where they didn't care anything about themselves and what they would gain from it, they just worshipped freely. Saul is the antithesis of this. Each of those people worshipped God in his context, not their own. Saul continued to try and worship God through the lens of his own life. I want to worship God in a way that makes me feel good. I'm going to worship God in a way that makes me look good. I'm going to worship God in a way that will not cost me much. Saul didn't want to surrender. There's a quote on your handout. It's the second quote down. It says this, When the Savior gives the command, Abide in me, with the promise, he who abides in me bears much fruit. He speaks of that willing, intelligent, and wholehearted surrender by which we accept his offer and consent to abiding in him as the only life we seek. It's by a gentleman named Andrew Murray, pastor in South Africa, from born in 1828 and died in 1897. John 15. Jesus gives this picture of being the branch or being the vine and us being a branch that is attached to the vine. And He says, if you abide in Me, remain with Me, stay with Me, dwell with Me, he who abides in Me will bear much fruit. He goes on to say, apart from Me you can do nothing. But if you abide in Me, you will bear much fruit. Murray offers us that what Jesus is talking about is this willing and intelligent and wholehearted surrender that we we must want to be surrendered to that. We have to desire to be in that surrendered position if our lives are to be lives that worship. And if we do, what happens is out of our brokenness, worship is not inhibited. Out of our brokenness, God's glory is not diminished, but out of our brokenness, God's glory is radically communicated to the world around us, because we are broken people. but we have been given a savior, a redeemer, who rode into Jerusalem on a cult that we would have hope. and we've been given much. So where do we have to wrestle? Have we let our hearts deceive us? Have we let humanism creep into our lives, our worship, our walks, our church? Have we made our worship about our needs, our desires, our comforts, our recognition? What we want and like? Have we made God's plan into our plan? Or are we deciding each day to surrender to God's plan? the perfect will that sometimes we don't understand the bigger picture of. But we have a God who's deserving of our trust. Amen? Back to 1 Samuel. Saul replied, verse 30, we have seen him have the kingdom ripped from his hands. This is the the final piece of God's tearing away of, of of Saul as a king. And Saul replied, I have sinned. But please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so I may worship the Lord, your God. So Samuel went back with Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. And that final piece, Samuel's heartbreak, Samuel's hope for Saul, I'll go back with you. I'll stand and worship with you. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him confidently, thinking surely the bitterness of death has passed. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother will be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord of Gilgal. Samuel is one incredibly hardcore old man. Picks up a sword and kills the king of the Amalekites, who thought, ah, no big deal, look at this little old priestly guy staring at me. Samuel puts him to death. And then Samuel left for Ramah. But Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again. Though Samuel mourned for him, mourned for Saul, mourned that he was never redeemed, mourned that he never got the wind for the right motives, mourned that he never walked out from under the shadow of his own failure. His perspective was never changed. And the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. In this story, in this text, we have a picture painted for us of what worship could be and what we often do to it. Saul refused to worship from a surrendered place. Saul refused to let God's glory be sufficient in its plan and as the end means of his worship. The end focus of his worship being God's glory. At the beginning of this year, I asked our young adults a question, like the first or second Tuesday night of the year, maybe the first, very first as we opened our year. We're also doing the year of worship. We're taking a, a different look at it every week. But at the beginning of this year, I pose this question. What would it look like if we took our eyes off of the mirror, the TV, the Internet, the selfish ambitions, all the stuff? More or less, to simplify the question, what would it look like if we removed ourselves from the equation and we lifted our eyes and focused them on Jesus and made Him the sole object of our worship? Because we're learning week in, week out, here, there, and our entire church, we're learning that our lives were designed from creation to bring God glory to tell the world of what a great and gracious and magnificent God we have, even through our brokenness. But if we were to take ourselves from the equation, look solely on Jesus as the object of our worship, I believe it would look like healing, restoration, and it would look like God's glory not being diminished by our brokenness, but being communicated through it his glory being sufficient for you and I as we walk through this world living under the umbrella of the saving grace of Jesus Christ so this week as you part I'm going to ask you a question because it's what I do every week I ask questions I'm going to leave you with this and actually it's more of an instruction and a question to ask yourself as you go through this week I want you to stop Moment by moment, maybe hourly, whatever it might be, where it fits in your schedule, when it comes to your mind, I want you to stop and I want you to ask yourself this question. In this moment, what is the object of my worship? Is it myself? Is it my glory? Is it God's? Because worship just doesn't happen here. These aren't really instruments of worship, these are just instruments. These are instruments of worship. Let's pray. God, tonight, tonight today, this morning, if I can figure out what time it is. <laughs> God, we just thank you. We thank you for the power of your word. And we thank you for the lasting, amazing nature of your grace and your mercy. That you looked at sinful, broken man and you gave us an opportunity to become instruments of worship. God, I pray that this week we would go out and we would learn and we would learn to love worshiping you in every way possible. God, and that we would fight against the temptation to attach our glory to yours. God, that we would simply be satisfied with the fact that you are receiving glory. God, because you are deserving of it, you are worthy of it, and God, we were designed to bring it to you. So God, let our lives live out worship each day in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen.